This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, what a fascinating character Jay Schultz is. Dubbed the unofficial mayor of Tel Aviv, Jay made Aliyah at the age of 30 and has done revolutionary things to enhance the world of Western Aliyah, to help Anglos, especially living in Israel and in particular in Tel Aviv. He's a huge champion for that city and has run all kinds of incredible projects to build its Jewish and social infrastructure. I think you're going to really enjoy him. I felt like I should put a trigger warning on Jay's interview because he has strong opinions. He's not afraid to express them with conviction. And if you're not a huge fan of the land of Israel and the state of Israel, then listener beware. But Jay really is a delight, fabulous guy, incredibly driven. I love his story and so much of what he represents to so many people in the Holy Land. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, any podcast platform. Please spread the word to your friends and family. Announce us far and wide so that others can enjoy this wonderful podcast. And now to our conversation with social entrepreneur, the unofficial mayor of Tel Aviv, Jay Schultz. We are here with Jay Schultz, the unofficial mayor of Tel Aviv. How are you, Jay? Rabari, it's a pleasure to be with you, brother. Great to have you. Great to have you. I'm thrilled that we were connected by my good friend, Rabbi Jack Cohn, who is a actually connected me to quite a few of my podcast guests recently. Um, he is a great connector and a great person. Jay, tell us a little bit about where you are from. Originally uh, exotic New Jersey, Fairland, New Jersey, but I've been 15 years in Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, specifically Tel Aviv, Ir HaKodesh, the holy white city. <laughs> Beautiful. The white city, city of sand. So, um, you grew up in Fairlawn, which is a, a beautiful community. I have some familiarity with it. Um, did you grow up in the Orthodox community there? No, I actually grew up pretty common American, secular, conservative, a little this, none of that, more ish than Jew. But uh, yeah, proud to be Jewish. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors. I, so I had a lot of deep emotional relationship with the Jewish people from that. But in terms of observance, uh, really very little. So I'm guessing you went to a Fairlawn High School? I went to public school, yeah, Fairlawn High. I work at University of Maryland. That's kind of like my main day job, I guess, slash night job, <laughs> whatever. But a lot of kids come from New Jersey, and, and Fairlawn High School is definitely a uh, source of, of quite a few students. So I grew up with this typical American, I guess, the Hebrew school thing, the Holocaust survivor grandparents. Temple Beshalom Hebrew School, uh, even though I went to public school, all of my friends were Jewish, you know, good Jew camp. I went to Rutgers undergrad. Okay, my, go nice. buddies from high school. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, what were we studying in Rutgers? Art history. Art history. 
Art history with a focus on archaeology, yeah. I wanted to be Indiana Jones. <laughs> How'd that work out for you? Uh, not bad, actually. I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, you know, I know Rutgers is known for its engineering program and, and maybe a couple other departments. I haven't heard of art history as a major uh, focus there. Is that is that a renowned department? Well, you're not going to have a cliche basic guy on a podcast, my, my friend. <laughs> if it's not interesting, well, it's not news. A hundred percent. That is true. That is true. So were you an artist growing up or you were more of a history guy or was what was your focus there? I was a collector. I love the treasure. I love the artifacts. It was all about it was all about the artifacts, man. Interesting. So as a kid, were you already collecting? Oh yeah. Two years old, picking up rocks and sticks and shells for sure. Now the, the older you get, it's just bigger and more expensive, but the, the love is still there. That's awesome. I'll, you know, confessions of a podcaster. When I was a, a little kid, I had a, um, a collection, you know, some people collect stamps, some people collect coins, baseball cards. I did some baseball cards, but my prized collection was, I kid you not, I called it this, my junk collection. And yeah. it actually had, a, it had a name on the box that said junk collection. <laughs> uh, what was in that box? Like rusted license plates. I want an hour podcast on just junk collecting. I'm being serious. <laughs> so wait, wait, more importantly, do you still have the box? I do not still have the box, no. Your mom tossed it. She probably did. I, I probably, I would, I have to say, I probably grew out of it, you know, as a teenager. I don't think I continued doing that. When I was a, you know, a little kid and through, you know, 10, 11, you know, I just was collecting all this random stuff. Um, so is that kind of what you were doing? Oh, big time. I mean, I, I never grew out of it, though. That's what it sounds like. What were some of the, uh, the most interesting artifacts or just objects that you collected? I mean, collect. I'm still wildly, wildly active collecting. You know, when I started young, it really was, yeah, I had baseball cards and I had the matchbox cars and I had those things. I had old coins. You had, a, you had that stuff. But, you know, the older you get, the more you learn, the more you travel. I, when I was younger, I was really into uh, tribal artifacts, a lot of masks, a lot of uh, folk art from around the world. But then I get, I get more into my, my Jew life, my Israel life, and I've really gone deep down the Jewish well. So Jewish treasure, Zionist artifacts, Jewish history is really where I'm focusing a lot right now. Biblical archaeology, a lot of biblical archaeology. Nice. All right, so I want to get into all that. But first, I want to understand just more maybe psychologically, what do you think inspires? Like, what do you think drove you from this really early age, two years old, or, you know, as a young kid, at least, to start collecting random artifacts? You know, objects speak to me. I, I, something old on the shelf, I get emotional about it, you know? Not happy, not sad. I get drawn into it. And that object speaks volumes of where it's been and who made it and why they make it. And what was the person doing when they made it? What were they thinking about? And how do they use it in life? And where do they touch it? And how do you, and how is that given to their great grandchild? And, and what do they do with it? And how do they appreciate it? What, what does that evoke of that time in that place? Yeah, you know, I've always loved museums. I've always loved art. I've always loved archaeology. Obviously, as, as a kid who grew up in the 80s, the Indiana Jones movies blew my mind. I mean, you had adventure, you had treasure, and you had dead Nazis. What could be more perfect? <laughs> you know, Indiana, by the way, Indiana doesn't get nearly up, nearly up credit for killing massive amounts of Nazis. That is true. That is definitely something that he was uh, yeah. excelled at. What was your favorite of the, of the trilogy? Oh, you got to go number one, man. It's some classic number one. It's not, not even close. Cool. So 
you describe kind of the mystique of collection and, and holding an artifact that may have been given over generation to generation and that has kind of a meta meaning to it. But again, trying to take it even one layer deeper, is there, is there something about that that animates you? Like why, why do you think you in particular were, were captured by that? It is powerful to hold history in your hand. When you imbue an object with more meaning than its inherent monetary value, when you have a sentimental relationship to a specific object, it's worlds, it's, it's universe, it's human experience in your hand. That's invaluable. And when you can string that together with a, an emotional story that connects to your own personal identity, it's unbreakable. So you mentioned that you grew up kind of, again, in this, this sort of generic Jewish environment, but obviously at some point, matriculated over to a, to a more intimate connection with your Judaism and certainly now living in Israel for 15 years is a pretty big commitment. So how did, how did your Jewish journey evolve? How did it unfold? So growing up in Northern Jersey with, with only Jewish friends and, and, and all the, all the trimmings of conservative American Jewish life, I knew it was important to be Jewish. I knew that it was beautiful especially because my, my mother's parents were Holocaust survivors. I had that weight of not negative responsibility, but noble responsibility that, wow, they're incredible. They survived. It's empowering. And I want, I want, want to be a strong link in that chain. And, and regardless of what I believe in and, uh, you know, looking back, my conservative Hebrew school, we never spoke about God. It wasn't about God. It was about identity. It was nice, but it wasn't real. It wasn't true. But at that point, even though I didn't understand it as truth or I didn't understand the spiritual value, I knew that it was my family and it was important and my grandkids had to have it. And I think as the years went on and I got older and I started seeing demographic trends of American Jewish life and seeing a lot of the kids I grew up with, the Jewish kids I went to camp and Hebrew school with, um, started not caring about a strong continuation of the Jewish people and marrying who they maybe shouldn't have. It blew my mind that someone would have this beautiful gift and just give it away, especially knowing my grandparents coming from the Shoah, what Hitler took from the Jewish people, God forbid I would ever just hand it over willingly. And as time went on, I knew I wanted to take that more seriously. Anything you either invest in and it gets better or it stalls and gets worse. And seeing, looking back at my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, and my peers around me, it, it, you, you can't just coast. The Jewish people don't coast. No one coasts. And, and to just rest on the laurels of the, uh, the holy ancestors we have can't be enough. I need to take a mature responsibility to be a strong link in the chain. So I tried up-leveling, dot, 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 and keeping Shabbos living, living in the land of Israel. So what did you do actually concretely just to start doing that? Did you seek out mentors? Did you start going to classes? So, you know, I grew up liking Israel. We liked it. It was a nice thing. I can't say we were massively flag-waving Zionists. And again, I had this important thing that's a gift, a beautiful gift to be Jewish, not that I could explain why, 
But when I was nine, it was 19, freshman year of college. That was it. Freshman year of college. I was taking a bus between campuses and Rutgers. And I see a little poster on the bus for some what to do in the summer, little, uh, little round table. I take a buddy with me. I go to one of the tables, said, you can spend the summer on an army base in Israel doing, it doesn't matter what, army base Israel, done. Mom, I'm going to the army. So by the way, it wasn't the army. It was just volunteering for a month. But I rounded up a bunch of buddies. And although I came from like a bar mitzvah trip when I was 13 as a teenager and eat McDavid's in Israel, who the hell knows McDavid's? It used to be a thing but they got rid of it. Coming as a, as a, not that 19 is a mature adult, but coming then on my own, without parents around, choosing to connect the land of Israel. It was a fun month volunteering on an army base. You did Sarel? Part of the Sarel program, Volunteers for Israel. And again, not that, not that I understood the place in history of Israel or, or what it meant to proactively connect to this Jewish destiny, but it was right. It felt right. So I spent the next few years on campus. I'd do a Chabad Shabbat dinner, do a Hillel Shabbat dinner. But I was also really into archaeology. Then my junior year, I came to study abroad at Hebrew U. And that's when you guys got me. With the beards and the kippah, the whole thing. <laughs> Just come for a lunch. There'll be food. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about stuff. Who was it Jeff Seidel you met over there? Who'd you meet over there? Uh, that's the hardest working man in the Jewish world, Jeff. I love Jeff. No, it was actually at Orsameach down at Hebrew U. Rabbi Chuck. Rabbi Chuck. Nice. Chuck, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a ninja warrior, you know? Yeah, yeah. Ninja warrior. I mean, if the night didn't have Chuck, he had a guitar, you know? Deadly with those guitars. <laughs> then, you know, it would be, uh, yeah, with Jeff, and it'd be, you know, Shabbat dinner. I don't know what Shabbat dinner was, but it was uh, free food and vodka. I don't know. It was, it was horrible. It was horrible vodka, but it was free. And so that's going to get you. But, you know, it was stringing together all that stuff where in all these different environments, and I, I definitely didn't appreciate it like I should have. But it was the first time someone ever said, I really remember being told this. Jews actually believe this thing. God is actually real. We really do believe it. The Torah, the Bible, it's not just stories. None of it's just nice. None of it's just history. It's spiritual reality. It's not just about chicken soup. It's not just about the Holocaust. And it's just, just not about identity. It's real. And if it's real, then there's implications. There's implications of doing it, of not doing it. There's implications, okay, you're ignorant. You grew up not being told anything. You didn't go to Jew school. But now you're a mature adult. So now you have responsibility. Are you going to choose to continue to be ignorant? Or now, oh, there's a responsibility, now learn. And I took that somewhat seriously, as seriously as maybe a 20-year-old kid having fun in college could. But at the end of that six months at Hebrew U, there were two big things that really, like, years later, I look back, changed my life. So one, I don't know who it was. By the way, I'm going to tell you a Karatato story, like these two stories of Jewish gratitude. And I can't put a name to either story because I was, was way too young. I didn't appreciate it at the time. So if someone there is listening, you know, these two guys, the guy and the girl are, I owe them a lot. So one was this. 
by the way, I told you I was into archaeology. I was interning at the Albright Institute of Archaeology, and I spent a lot of time. I was in East Jerusalem, and I spent a lot of time bouncing around the old city, not hanging out with the Jews, going to a little Arab shuk, going to a little shop to shop, trying to buy coins and little, little pieces of ancient treasure. And obviously it was religious, and I popped, popped down to the hotel to say hi to the old stones. And I obviously didn't have a keep on because, you know, again, I didn't have a keep on. And, I, and I, I remember her face. It was a Revinson. It was a religious Jewish woman. She had the shmata. The, she, had the, she, had, she had the wig. She had the shaitel. She came up to me. She said, you know, you look like one of those Hebrew you kids. Obviously, you're not religious. You're at the Kotel. Do me a favor. Can you go back to college? Can you go back to America, back to your campus? You're not going to keep kosher. You're still going to go into McDonald's. But one time they go into McDonald's. I don't want you going to McDonald's, but just one time. Don't order the bacon cheeseburger. And what do you mean? She's like, well, I don't want you to get the bacon cheeseburger. I don't want you to get any of this stuff. But you're going to do it anyway. So next time, instead of getting the bacon cheeseburger, just get a cheeseburger. Not that I think it's okay to eat a cheeseburger. You shouldn't be eating the tray from the beginning. Mama said, I didn't think about it at all. Six months later, I walk into not McDonald's, I walk into Wendy's on campus and I ordered the bacon cheeseburger. This is my senior year of college now. And I ordered the bacon cheeseburger like I, like, like I used to love to do. And after I ordered, I said, you know what? <sighs> Stop. There was like a seed in the back of my, the back of that sprout. I said, hey, you know what? Forget about it. I'm just gonna have the cheeseburger. And I took a bite of that cheeseburger and Rabbi, I'm not ashamed to say it was the most spiritual, holy moment of my entire life. There was no rabbi around. I wasn't on some program. I was only looking over my shoulder. I wasn't in a Jewish context. I was in a trafe restaurant on a college campus away from. But it was the first time as like an individual, again, quasi mature adult that I did or didn't do something Jewish because only because. That's what Jews are supposed to do. Jews don't eat pork. And I ate that cheeseburger and I had this like wave of emotional relationship to like Moses to Sandy Koufax Judaism, you know, 4,000 years of glory. And boy, oh boy, like I shouldn't have walked into Wendy's and ordered a bacon cheeseburger to be in with and I should have had the bite of the cheeseburger. But I promise you it, it started the next 10 years of the slowest Balchuba observance process of all time. And I didn't stop eating pork then. It probably took another couple of years where I, where I stopped eating pork and another two years before I stopped eating shrimp and another three years before I got the cheeseburgers. But every step I took, even if I wasn't ready to fully jump off the cliff and take the step forever, I had that intention in my mind of, even the next time I ordered the bacon cheeseburger, I knew I was doing it. That to me taught me that Jewish identity, not nearly enough, and the matzah balls and the Holocaust in Israel, not enough, that the beauty of Torah was observance. And that there's a magic into doing something and not doing something because Dafka, that's just what a Jew is that makes us different from the rest of the world. And it made me feel not better, not special, but my real me. So that was one story. I had no idea who this woman was. 
but God, God should bless her until 120. The other story was at the end of Hebrew U, they got some rabbi. Maybe it was Chuck. I don't know. I call him Charles, by the way. Just I just want you to know. <laughs> you guys are very close. Yeah, it's super close. <laughs> I got a shoebox. By the way, let me let me date myself. This is 97. So it, it was a shoebox. What was in the shoebox? Cassette tapes. They weren't bought off eBay. I'm right there. I'm right there with you, Jay. I'm right there with you. <laughs> this is original, definitely A plus. It was the most A plus. There was maybe like 30 of them, 20 of them. I don't know how many cassette decks fit in a shoebox. Maybe 20, but it was Torah on tape. And the guy said, listen, here's the box. Take it back to campus. Listen to it. Give it to someone else. But just don't throw it away. But I'll tell you, I spent the next year wearing out those tapes. I can't explain to you. And again, it also made this huge difference, just like the cheeseburger. I didn't listen to it in front of like friends and family. I didn't, I didn't go to some rabbi class to listen to these things. It was like I was on my own because I'm like headphones, and this Your little Walkman. Sony there cassette thing, right? Or the, the Walkman, or I had a car too, so, but it was in the car. But I was alone. And again, it was something that as a individual, mature Jewish adult, that transformed me. And again, it was something that I was never taught. I was never shown as a young Jewish kid growing up in conservative New Jersey. Torah is absolutely beautiful. It's intellectually stunning. It's physically powerful. It's spiritually powerful. It's, it's aesthetically beautiful. Torah says that the Beit HaMikdash was the most beautiful building ever, ever built. Not just spiritually, physically. Sarah, Abraham's wife, was gorgeous. Physically, said this guy Yosef. Joseph, I'm 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 a Yosef. It was a, it was a good looking guy. It said that physical power meant something. Also, is that we fought wars not because we weren't supposed to, because we were supposed to. We were supposed to win them, and we actually had swords. And if we weren't spiritually clean, we lost, no matter how strong we were. But we had that also, and that there was this larger story of a cohesive universe of, of both physical and spirituality that no one ever told me about. And the best part, and I'm going to harken back to what I said earlier, I was told that it was true. And that's revolutionary. It's crazy thinking back, you know, I spent 10 years in, in my conservative Hebrew school, and I really don't remember talking about God. I don't remember anyone saying, it's not just this guy with a long beard up in the sky that we have to do things for. There's nothing we can do for God. He created the universe. He's infinite. He's perfect. Infinity plus one is still infinity. You can't give. So you can only get. And if you can only get, what a gift. I want to get things. I want to get things. And especially if I'm going to get things that are good for me. I got hooked. And again, it took me a long, long time, very slow I wouldn't say step by step, it was inch by inch. But dot, 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 it led me to now keeping Shabbos and having to take a one-way trip to the land of Israel. So what was your actual career goal? Were you planning to go into archaeology? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I really did want to be Indiana Jones. I'll tell you, when I was 
real side note of that, I when I was interning in, in Jerusalem at this Albright Institute of Archaeology, it was an old school British institution. So four o'clock, high tea in the garden. And I'll sit there as a little pitcher in the garden on the side, listening to all the real archaeologists. None of them, by the way, had like the cool hat, the jacket. None of them had like, <laughs> no, the blonde on the arm. None of that. They were just fetching. They were crying the whole time about how miserable their lives were, how much it sucked being an archaeologist, how much they never saw their families and they and they had to kill themselves to get another grant, dealing with tenure and being an academic and, and having to get a professorship and footnoting, footnoting. I don't want a footnote. I want treasure. I want, I want adventure. So I said, forget about it. I'm not going to be an archaeologist. So I uh, took my gorgeous art history degree, which is really useful for absolutely very little. And I went to law school because I'm a Jewish kid. So I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I go to law school. It was never my career goal. So did you actually practice law or what, what did you do after law school? Yeah, you know, I practiced for half a second. I was doing entertainment, intellectual property litigation. It was never really what I wanted to do. I enjoyed maybe 5% of being a lawyer. I did some really cool stuff. But even, you know, really right out of law school, I did some tremendously cool stuff. And even that, it was so miserable, overwhelmingly, that I said in, impossible. So I just went entrepreneurial and Baruch Hashem. I was nicely, decently successful uh, in the beginning. And after a bunch of years of bouncing around Manhattan, being a young Jew, I realized this place is not on the upswing. And I had to take my connection to the Jewish people more seriously. So I started plugging into Israel. Again, 10 years later, after my shoebox and cheeseburger. Incredible. What, what kind of businesses were you running on your own? So international healthcare consulting, I was partners in a medical software company. Random different things that uh, got your juices flowing, I guess. Yeah, just being creative and getting into business. So what was the prompt? What was the, the spark that you said, you know what? I got to get back to Israel. I mean, you just looked around Manhattan one day and had an epiphany like this place is going down. So it wasn't, it wasn't just that I had to get back to Israel. It was, all right, so I'm, I'm law school in New York. I'm a decade in Manhattan. Again, Jewish friends, boys and girls. And I started plugging into different Shabbat dinners and different learning things and different organizations for young, you know, young professionals, whether it be more religious, less religious, more Zionist. And, you know, New York has the most money in the Jewish diaspora. And it's got the most creative options in terms of choices for how to connect to the Jewish people. Left, 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 right, 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 religious, non. You had the most density of, of young Jews altogether, right? I was involved in all of them. And I was the number one volunteer and I was really excited. And I really put my heart and soul and energy into the young Jewish community stuff and learning and, and Jewish life there. But after 10 years, I recognized that where the Jewish people are spending the most money, giving the most options to try to connect Jews to Jewish future, the majority of young Jews, even in Manhattan, couldn't care less about the future of the Jewish people. So if we're spending the most money and doing the most and being the most creative with the most energy and the most density of options, the most density of people, we're still losing the majority, it's a failure. What are we doing here? How could this be? How could this be where we're doing the most, we're still losing completely? So I said, there's got to be a better way. And by the way, at the same time, 
friends, family started marrying out. And again, looking back to how I grew up that I didn't know what being Jewish was, but I knew my grandkids had to have that thing called being part of the Jewish people. Pew study and then some. Got to pull the plug. There's no future for a vibrant Jewish life in America. So just hop on a plane, make Aliyah? A year before I came, I called up my parents and I said, I'm moving to Israel. And my mother cried. Three months later, by the way, guys, remember I said, I'm, I'm going to Israel. And my mother cried. And after a year of playing this like boy cried wolf with my mother, I finally went. She still cried. But uh, yeah, I came on a one-way trip to Tel Aviv. And really, I, I, was, I looked around and I saw, okay, I read a book. I'm not going to quote the author. The book was written in 1971, and it was a commentary on Jewish life at the time. And the author said, in 1971, American Jewish life has 17% intermarriage. 17, one seven. Said, oh, that's it. It's over. We're done. Beginning of the end. Forget about it. And most people called the author crazy. 40 years later, a single generation of the non-observant were at 71%. Totally right. And that was my reality, is I grew up in the bulk of American Jewish paradigm, which is the conservative movement, the vibrant secular Jewish life in America. That's the majority of young Jewish kids. And I realized the majority of them are going to have non-Jewish grandchildren. I couldn't stomach thinking that I would raise my children and gamble with who my grandchildren would be in that same context. And by the way, by then I also had a lot more Shabbos in my life and a lot more Torah in my life. And so I also did a lot of good reading about God talking about how important the land of Israel was. So I had a lot of good theological reasons for coming on a one-way trip to Israel. And we can get into that. I just told you a lot of like emotional relationship to not being able to stomach being in an assimilationist environment because of my grandparents on the, and, and, and that, you know, Shoah Holocaust history. But then just practically the math of it, I didn't want to gamble with who my grandkids were. I didn't want to go to Vegas and roll the dice on the craps table. But then I came out like a test trip in 2006 to Israel. And I didn't go to Yerushalayim this time. I went to Tel Aviv for the first time, like really spent time in Tel Aviv. And it blew my mind. And that's when I recognized for all my good Zionist philosophy, for all of my good Torah theology, for all my good practical mathematics about the statistics of vibrant Jewish future, selfishly, I knew I had to be in Israel. Because as as good as all that intellectual psychology and philosophy and, and spirituality was, It was too good here. Feeling the vibrancy, seeing more Jewish babies on the street than altacockers in the old age home and seeing more Jewish cranes building Jewish buildings than seeing buildings of JCCs being knocked down like so many did in in Jersey where I grew up. It excited me. And so selfishly, I wanted to be a part of that. Well, it's interesting you're talking about maybe the most secular city in Israel. And, you know, you said you were driven there by kind of assimilation. So listen, first of all, first of all, it may be the most secular city in Israel. Maybe. I don't even, I, I won't even give it that. But let me give it to you just for, just for conversation. Tel Aviv, the metro area, still holds one quarter of world Jewry. 
25% Jews in the world live in the Tel Aviv metro. That makes my, my buses and my sidewalks the most Jewish buses on the sidewalks on the planet. We have a more kosher area than Manhattan, all due respect. We got more kosher restaurants in Tel Aviv, actual kosher, not kosher style, wink, wink, cat's deli. I'm talking kosher than New York. Rob Lau's our chief rabbi. My area goes halfway to the water on the beach. We got more synagogues per square capita than certainly Manhattan. And so if our bars have mezuzahs and the supermarkets only sell kosher food, then the most secular place in Israel seems to be a lot more from and toradic than the most kosher city in America. And when there's more Jewish babies here than any other city on the planet, we're doing okay. And I wanted to plug into that because I saw that truth. But guess what? I had a lot of guys like you, the best rabbis in Jerusalem and in New York and the States. When I said, you know, I'm moving to Israel. Okay, that's great. Where are you going? I'm going to Tel Aviv. You can't go to Tel Aviv. There's no Jews in Tel Aviv. There's no Torah in Tel Aviv. There's no Shabbos in Tel Aviv. You know, Sin City, like this Sorry guy says. I said, you know what? Maybe in Tel Aviv, there's, um, you know, some ball worshipers are painting the face blue and sacrificing virgins at, moon, at, at the moonlight. But there's no, there's, no, there's no Jewish life there. And I said, you know what? There's a thing called like the hate of the Moraglu, the sin of the spies, speaking negatively on the land of Israel. Don't talk negatively about, about Tel Aviv. It's more Eretz HaKodesh, holy land, than anything you got over there. But more importantly than what Tel Aviv is, let's also remember, Israel's three days old of a country. 70 years is nothing. And in the beginning of a place, there's nothing to complain about. You go to Ikea, you're building a coffee table. It looks like this until it looks like this because you didn't finish building it yet. And that's all of Israel, not just Tel Aviv. What I saw is the potential of the place to be this like Moshiach, the Jewish people, because I knew it represented the most desirable place in Israel that hypothetically all the guys and girls I left back at home, besides all the good beaches, besides the weather, besides the girls and the guys and the parties, forget all that. The real substance of the place. Tel Aviv is the center of power for the land of Israel. Tel Aviv is the center of finance and banking and the law firms. The startup nation, the high tech, that's Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv's the radio, Tel Aviv's the television, Tel Aviv is fashion, Tel Aviv's the army. And that's just power. And then I realized that if you wanted to influence and elevate Israelis, if it's not in Tel Aviv, it doesn't happen. Unfortunately, Yerushalayim, Moshiach's not here yet. It isn't what it will be. We know that the temple's in ruins. We know Moshiach ain't here yet. We know that Yerushalayim is the crown on the crown on the crown. But it's just not there yet. And we see it in Israeli society. Most Israelis, unfortunately, and again, I say this unfortunately because I love Yerushalayim. Most Israelis, the last time they were at the Kotel's when the army made them go there for a ceremony because they had to go there because they were in the army. But that's it. But that Tel Aviv represented this place that they get influence from. So it's powerful. Now, some people get scared of power. They think power is negative. But $10 million in a gun could save a lot of lives and do a lot of good. Or it could do a lot of damage. It depends who's holding that gun and that bag of money. And that's what I saw at Tel Aviv as, is that I know that God doesn't work at random. He doesn't, he doesn't roll the dice with the universe. He doesn't roll the dice with your life. He doesn't roll the dice with the Jewish people. And that if God chose this place, Tel Aviv, to be the center of physical power for the land of Israel, then I know there's spiritual power there too. And I know that, that there's tools and capacity there 
that need to be not built, revealed. And that excited me about Tel Aviv, that it can't just be randomly that this place of such Jewish rebirth and power exists, but that it's, as you joked earlier, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you that it, wait, you made a joke and nothing else, I'm not gonna judge you, my friend, is that it's only Ir HaKodesh. It only has to be the holiest of cities. And so that really excited me. It's a very cookie and uh, very cookie in a perspective. I'm all cooked out. That's for sure. <laughs> I love it. That's another thing I, I, I never heard once, never heard his name once living in America. Did I hear that? So what was your plan when you moved to Israel? And then what actually happened? <laughs> I love that you know that that, of course, is the story, right? I knew the two different things. Yeah. Yeah. You go, you visit Egypt, you see the pyramids. You visit Israel, you have, you have a thing, the other thing happens. So yeah, I, I had no plan. My plan was a one-way trip, that was for sure. My plan was to have a lot of fun, without question. I, I moved at 30. I was single at the time. It sounds like you had some money in your pocket at that point. Yeah, I had, yeah, I had a little, yeah, for sure. So you know, I got to Tel Aviv, and in 2006, Tel Aviv was pretty devoid of other Americans. There wasn't an international scene. No one really made Aliyah to Tel Aviv. There was no French the way there are now. There were no Americans. You know, really, there was maybe 30 of us, young international scene. You know, Yerushalayim is where you moved to if you were single and spoke English back then. Tel Aviv really had none. And so I was excited about the idea of attracting other young Jews to Tel Aviv from around the world. I saw that as, you know, every young Jew, I, I, get, I get to come to Israel. It's like bombing another train track to Auschwitz. And so I wanted to use Tel Aviv as this, as this lighthouse, as a magnet to like attract young Jews to the land. And so I started trying to build something that also didn't, didn't exist in, in Israel, is a thing called community. And so just on my own, in my home, I started hosting little Shabbat dinners. You know, I go to bars, I go to clubs, I meet people, take the business card. We had business cards back then. And I would say, just come to my house for, for, for Shabbat dinner. There's, there's food, there's wine. It's good. It's fun. It's good. And I started trying to coalesce a basket. So when a new young person would show up, they would have friends and they would have business relationships and they, they would have a network to make it more sustainable that they stay. And success breeds success. So then more and more will come. And so dot, 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 15 years later, we have over 20,000 Western Olim in Tel Aviv. Now Tel Aviv is where the majority of people make Aliyah to. Western Aliyah. Tel Aviv gets more than Jerusalem and more than Haifa and more than Beersheba. And that's a new reality. It's really in the last five years. But I had this vision back all the way back then when there really wasn't any of us to use Tel Aviv as that engine. That engine of Aliyah, that engine of pioneering Israeli civil society, building modes of volunteerism and tzedakah and Jewish learning and Jewish life. And dot, 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 I had these visions, but uh, I built it up into a thing. So would, did that become a career of sorts or this is really always a, an extracurricular always a, activity? All extracurricular, full-time extracurricular, full-time hobby uh, on top of my, all my other hobbies. But yeah, it's, I, was, I, be, I became wildly passionate about it. I, you know, you and I don't know how many heartbeats we got, you know, hopefully 120, maybe 180 in terms of the years, not in terms of the number of heartbeats left. But, you know, I want to make them all count. 
you know, also I, I keep going back to it, but it really was always impactful for me knowing that my grandparents were survivors, you know, sure. If I could push a button, go back in time and shoot baby Hitler in the head, I would do that. Right. It's like the best thing I could do for the Jewish people, but I can't do that. So what's the most I as a young kid from Jersey, what's the most I can do macro for the Jewish people. Everyone can do a small little chesed, but I'm going to go big. I'm not a billionaire. I can't put a billion dollars and start birthright. So what's the most I can do as a young Jew? So I started this, this project of using Tel Aviv, of coalescing community, of attracting young Jews from around the world, of when they get to Tel Aviv to give, try to give them Jewish life and give them Jewish education, give them a, a deeper relationship to the Jewish people, to the land of Israel, to get them also volunteering and contributing to the bright future of the Jewish people in the land that became the most I felt I can do my value add that I felt I was filling a vacuum. Did you ever get a paying job or you've been doing this as your full-time gig? Full-time volunteer gig. I kept being entrepreneurial. I started, I started building, you know, on top of the other things I was still doing in the States when I came here, started getting into some real estate opportunity investment things, by the way, side hustle with art antiques, we can talk about that as well. But yeah, this has become a full-time hobby passion. Amazing. So first of all, do you have a name? Is it like an organization at this point? Yeah. Now it's called the Am Yisrael Foundation. It's amyisrael.com. It's grown to become the largest young Jewish community organization on the planet. In a normal non-corona year, we're hosting 30,000 young Jews in person for community events, volunteerism, Jewish learning, we work, we do with the arts, politics, diplomacy. We're on the largest speakers forum in the country. We run, we're an umbrella for about 10 different initiatives, organizations to do what I said earlier, which is see Israel for the three-day-year-old thing that it is and realize we can be cowboys. Because when you enter a vacuum and things aren't built yet, I can help decide the next thousand years of the Jewish people with a little creativity and a little energy and a lot of chutzpah you can create worlds because this place is a vacuum because this place is so new and there's nothing to complain about. And what a sexy message it is to a young Jew around the world that not just you should be here because God says you should be here, but boy, oh boy, this place really needs you. Israel needs you. Israel needs you. Israel has 14 million vacuums and each yid on the planet can fill their vacuum. And when you go to a place that is so new and still forming, it has an energy and a vibrancy that you don't get in America today, that you can't get in the majority of the world today. And certainly as a Jew, when only Israel's ours forever, even if it's here, you're investing a dime on the dollar, that dime is in your eternal bank account, our eternal bank account. You can build palaces in America, but they're castles on sand. They're going to melt away. Tel Aviv may be built on sand, but it's here. It's ours forever. And no, really, it's, it's you know, a lot of these things I, I've been saying a lot for many years now, and they come off as cliches in my head, but I know they're real. And because and I see it and it works. So give me, give me like a, a sampling of some of these 10 initiatives. What are some of the, the, the things that you're doing? So one of the first things I started, because I saw how valuable it was connecting me back to my Rabbi Chuck, 20 years old at Hebrew U, Shabbat dinner. So I started a, we started a, 
a nonprofit called White City Shabbat. The nickname of Tel Aviv is the White City, like New York Big Apple, Tel Aviv White City. And once a week, once a month, twice a month, we'd host 100, 200, 300 person Shabbat meals. It grew so rapidly in 2014, we set the Guinness record for the world's largest Shabbat dinner. In a single location or spread out throughout the city? Single location, four walls, one roof, no different rooms. Everyone's sitting and eating at the same time. And this is how, always how the Shabbat dinners worked? There were always these large events? Always large. It wasn't always 2,226, like, like my Guinness record. But yeah, no, from the first one we did, 100 plus. And again, it helped build community. It helped bring together young Sabra Israelis with young Olim, young guys and girls that made Aliyah. Shabbat's good. Making Jewish babies is better. So it really helped not create, but reveal the Jewish life of Tel Aviv. And that, again, back, we're, we're going to get sidetracked, but that's, that's the Roth Cook you mentioned earlier that, that I really connected with and excited me. Another organization we founded is called the Tel Aviv International Salon. It's grown to become the largest speakers forum in Israel. Once, twice a month, we host, host the leaders of Israel. Next week, we're hosting uh, Bibi, Netanyahu. Um, I mean, we're in elections now, right? Israel has an election every, every three months now. So we're hosting all the leaders of all the different parties, but we've hosted everyone from Dr. Ruth and Alan Dershowitz, the former head of the CIA, to every Israeli Knesset member, diplomat, and ambassador, really to, to connect, to engage young Jews in active Jewish life, but specifically in terms of civic engagement, grassroots leadership. You know, Israel was built as a pretty much a, a socialist, communist model where there really isn't so much grassroots civic engagement between the street and the Knesset. Yeah, anyone can walk into the Knesset and knock on the door, but no one really does. And so coming from an American context, and by the way, I left America, I'm not moving back, but I'm really patriotic to have left America. I'm very proud and I have a lot of gratitude for being, having been American and educated that way, not just in terms of the classic education, but in terms of, I think, uh, societal civic education. And I think, tell me if I'm wrong, Rabbi, but I think it was Rashi that said the reason of the, the diaspora to begin with is that there's all these amazing sparks of beauty and importance in the world. And the Jewish Aliyah, the Jewish Kibbutz Galayot, the coming back to the land, is bringing the best of where we came from back here. And that's something beautiful about making Aliyah. That's something beautiful about coming home is we can take the best. We can leave the worst, but take the best of, of where we all came from to be able to self-actualize an individual, as a family, but as a nation. And you feel that. So, by the way, because Israel was built as this majority culture in, in, in a singular place, the idea of community was never built in Israel. You know, community is really, from an American Jewish sense, it makes sense. Every Jew has community. No. You know, an Israeli has got to come to Brooklyn to realize what Jewish community is. He, he never had it in Israel. Israelis are the best in the world with friends and family. They're the best in the world of national disaster. But that middle thing, the thing that you and I know, the thing called community, which is so necessary for moving society forward. You know, Israel can build a country and win wars and have cities, but that's not enough. That's not a nation yet. And so understanding that there really are these untouched, worlds that need to be developed here was so exciting. So we didn't stop there. We built an organization called Adopt the Safta. 
which is the largest organization in Israel having young people volunteer to take care of lonely elderly, specifically Holocaust survivors. So it's on the big brother, big sister model where you adopt a lonely grandmother, a lonely grandfather that you see every single week that you're responsible for and they're responsible for you. We have the Tel Aviv Arts Council where we celebrate Israeli creativity. We run the only now, the only Torani gap year program in Tel Aviv called Taratech, combining Jewish learning and interning. We run, I forget now. Oh, we do a lot of important work in the Knesset. We do a lot of lobbying on behalf of the international community, the Western English-speaking community. So we lobbied the Knesset five years ago to create the newest Israeli national holiday called Yom HaAliyah, Aliyah Day. We invented it. We were drunk at a bar and had an idea how cool it would be to have a holiday talking about what we care about. And so we said, hey, Israel's so new, let's just go knock on doors. And we spent four years knocking on doors in the Knesset and dot, 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 Israel has Yom Atzmaut and Yom Ashwah and Yom Azikaron and Yom Yerushalayim. And now it has Yom HaAliyah as a new national holiday. So you see, you can come to Israel as a kid from New Jersey and get Guinness records and invent new holidays out of nowhere with nothing. It's amazing. Come home. Are you working mostly, I mean, it sounds like you're working primarily with Anglos with, or with Western Aliyah makers. What about the Israelis? Great question, because I, I, it's true. I started that, you know, and, and, and more than I work for who made Aliyah, for who's here, really, I think far more of who I left back home, preparing this place to, to pull them here. And so I think about creating more vibrancy here. Well, if you're freezing your tuchus off, in Maryland, Chicago, New York. Well, you're not freezing in Miami and LA, but you're not so happy. And you see your, your peers in Tel Aviv having the time of their life in a much better vibrant context. You'll get a little jealous and maybe you'll come check out what we got going here. And maybe you'll come in and plug in and come here for a week and spend a month and meet your wife and make babies. But in terms of Israelis, so we didn't create it for Sabra Israelis, but immediately, from day one of doing these things, 20%, 30%, 40% of who comes are young Israelis. The Jewish stuff we do, the Torah stuff we do, we got a bunch of rabbis working for us. Real Israelis come. Why? Because English is cool. Because English is cultural. Because they get to be in Israel and make friends with boys and girls not from Israel. When I first moved here, I had a meeting with Hillel at Tel Aviv University. And they taught me this. They said, Jay, when we do an event, we put together some Jewish event. We make a poster in Hebrew. No one comes. But we do something in English for those international kids. And all of a sudden, we get all these like real Israelis showing up. So you know this. In Israel, the, the secular Israelis often have a not an ignorant view or apathetic view of traditional religious Judaism. They all too often have a negative view, a negative reaction. It's a negative association, and that's, and that's a real shame. But if something's in English, even though it's the same rabbi with the same beard and the same hat on and the same, and the same synagogue teaching the same Torah, but it's in English, or it's the same cholent and the same Shabbos, but it's geared in an international framework, it breaks this shtiyot or mental block or spiritual block that a lot of people have against the evil rabbis, and they connect. So yes, to answer, to answer your simple question, I would say 30% of our organization is real Israeli. And that's a beautiful thing because when you, when you give modes of community and tzedakah and, 
and volunteerism um, and Jewish, Jewish life and Jewish identity to the real Israeli, that really has an impact on the land. And that really trickles down to the rest of the country. You said you hired staff. What's that been like? What's the, what's the contours of your you know, organizational staff at this point? You have a bunch of rabbis, you have coordinators, directors. We got a few tremendous rabbis working for us. We have, we have very small staff. By the way, I'm a volunteer. The overwhelming, uh, the organization is 99% of much younger, better volunteers than myself that, you know, that showed up here after me. But yeah, we have a few, few pieces of professional staff, specifically on our Jewish life, Jewish learning programs, and then specifically with Adopt the Safta, social workers, volunteer coordinators to make the matches between the lonely elderly and, and, the, and the young volunteers. And it's all private funding? All You fundraise for it all or how does that work? Yeah, yeah, money, money triples in. By the way, most of what we do fee for service. We do Shabbat dinner. Everyone pays pay. for... Yeah, yeah, everyone pays. I don't this this birthright giveaway Judaism stuff for free. I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it. Even if you're paying a little, pay because you what you invest in, you love more, you appreciate more. And I think looking back, I, I got too much free stuff as a young Jew, and I threw it away. I, I threw it away because it, it it came easy. It's got to go easy. It's a big conundrum as a as a Jewish educator. I'm sure you know. You know the the uh, walking that fine line between if you don't give it to them, they may not ever take a peek under the hood to begin with to even know that it's worth paying for. Yeah. You give it a taste, give it a taste. You know, I think it was, uh, I'm not the, not the biggest rapper guy, but I think it was notorious B.I.G. said, you know, you give him a taste first and then you make money on the comeback, you know, Torah, cocaine. What's the difference? There's no difference, right? <laughs> not at all. None that I can think of anyway. You heard it here uh, first. Not at all. Science. <laughs> it's science. Just kind of in closing, where do you want to go with this organization? What's yet undeveloped, unexplored? You know, you're still, instead you. of still in this. Uh, you're not here. What are you, my wife? <laughs> yeah, where are you? That's the game plan, Jay. It's the game plan. But I got, I got to finish some work over here first. But that's the game plan. God willing. No, so it's true. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer it seriously, which is I do want every young Jew on the planet to move here yesterday and stay here forever and contribute to the future of the land of Israel. I really do want that. I see the last 20 years of birthright and the last 20 years of Chabad and other Kiruv movements do a lot of nice stuff. And I'm saying this because it did, it, it changed my life and I have unlimited gratitude for guys like you doing the work you do. I, I kid about it, but I really, it's, it's, it's life-changing, but it, man, it's a drop in the bucket, right? It's a scratch in the surface. And for all this stuff and all this time and energy and, and billions of dollars served, to try to come up with a creative way to save the American Jewish Jewish context, things have gotten worse, right? Things have gotten worse. Intermarriage is higher. Lack of relationship of young Jews to Israel is worse. Lack of relationship to young Jews and their local, their Jewish communities are worse, not better. There's virtually no upward trends in American Jewish life, regardless of the amazing tzaddikim like you really doing the incredible stuff. So when I think about what do I want? Yeah, I want every Jew in the world to be here. I think if you're secular, you need to be here so you can be secular and have Jewish grandchildren. If you're religious and have opened the Torah, well, then God is telling you something that you haven't paid attention to yet, which is come home. And that the Torah was given outside the land of Israel because it was given on the way here. Of course, the pushback would be in terms of a secular Jew, you know, you see, you see a mass I don't call it a mass, but you see a significant exodus from secular Israelis to America, because if you don't have that spiritual basis, then 
in many ways, Israel is kind of a poor man's, you know, a stepsister. It's a great problem to be. It's a great problem that, that you highlight that good. It means you, you, you're going to have a lot of great work to do when you come here because you're seeing an important problem that you very you have the ability to help it to help make a positive impact. But I'll tell you, apples to apples, your secular Israeli versus your secular American Jew is not even close. It's not even close to what they believe. It's not even close to what they know. It's not even close to the relationship of who of, of, of how strongly they want themselves and their great great grandkids to feel connected to the future of the Jewish people. Your average American secular Jew is light years behind the same in Israel. Right. With the but with the one potential difference that you often are lacking the antagonism that the Israeli Jew may have, which which can be that barrier to to penetrating into Jewish life. Or the opposite. I think the biggest problem in American Jewish life is not antagonism, it's apathy. It's ignorance. 100%. Right? Absolutely agree. The last Pew study showed that 50% of American Jews, when asked to raise their hand, are you Orthodox, Conservative, or Reform, say, I'm nothing, right? I'm, I'm, I'm unaffiliated completely to any Jewish community context. That is far more dangerous. That is far more of a existential threat to bright, vibrant Jewish future than any problem. And there's, and there really, there are issues in Israel, not problems we got issues than that. Jay, uh, anything that we haven't covered here in, in terms of your work there and your life in Israel and parting messages? We haven't done anything yet. We haven't even started, my friend. By the way, I want to tell you, my, my life, my work, and my stuff is really boring. It's the same thing you, you and I are passionate about, that we've dedicated our lives to caring about and doing it from different ways and different angles. That means everything to me. And we haven't even talked nothing. We haven't gotten any there and anywhere yet. So you're uh, one day at a time over here. You're, you're doing living the dream in the Holy Land and uh, collecting art. It sounds like still and and, and art Jewish artifacts and uh, living in Tel Aviv and, and making a making a great Jewish world. What's it been like in COVID and and how are you adapted to all that? So obviously, as an organization, we stopped doing, you know, community events. We're not doing the 5,000 person Shabbat dinners anymore. We're not we're not hosting, hosting a lot of that stuff. Obviously, a lot moved to Zoom, but Zoom's totally boring. No one's going on Zoom and making Jewish babies. You know, you're not building community virtually. It just doesn't happen. And so I get very little nachas doing online events. I will say very specifically with our Adopta Safta, you know what the real pandemic of the world is? Loneliness. It affects everyone far worse than, than any other disease on the planet. The elderly are the most vulnerable. By the way, survivors, even among the elderly, are the even more vulnerable for being isolated and, and alone. So now because of Corona, the world, everyone understands loneliness and isolation more than ever before. So Dafka, we should all triple down as like the Jewish people and say every society should be based on how we treat our vulnerable elderly. The Jews should be the real light into the nations on that. And taking care and having more grandparents in your life is like the most selfish thing you could possibly do. You want to talk about treasure and collecting and artifacts. Nothing's better than a Jew than another Jewish booby or Zadi in your life. So specifically during Corona, really ramping up adopt the Safta more nationally. But we actually, I will say this, this is cool news for the organization. We just won this big award and partnered with the Jewish Agency and Ministry, Ministry of Diaspora to scale the adopt the the model of taking care of lonely elderly globally to Jewish communities worldwide. Jay Schultz, the 
mayor of Tel Aviv. Ah. Thank you so much for joining us. Rabbi, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.